I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Let's party, Artie. Hello, peeps, and welcome to episode 17 of the Bro Bible Endless Hustle podcast. I'm Matt Cohan, and as always, I'm joined by the singular Arthur Cade. Arthur, say hello to the people. Matt, I am indeed singular. Hello to the people. As always, if you haven't subscribed, please do. And if you're on the fence about it, I think this episode may turn you into a believer because our guest today gets deep with themes like failure, perspective, and second chances. Arthur, tell the people who we're hanging out with today. We are hanging out with arguably one of the most controversial infamous and I would say unique career paths we've ever seen in sports Mr. Ryan Leaf everyone will probably remember Ryan because he was drafted number two the same year that Peyton Manning was drafted number one he was toe-to-toe with Peyton during the whole draft process and believe it or not people were actually saying that Ryan was going to be a better pro than Peyton Manning obviously in hindsight that didn't end up being the case that being said I would say Matt I think you would agree this was arguably the most inspiring interview we've ever had here on The Hustle, just to see Ryan's transformation, to think about this guy has been arrested so many times. He's been down and out, drug problems, mental illness. He even talked about it a ton on the podcast. This guy was down and out about as much as down and out can get. And to see where he's at now, he's back at his college playing weight. He looks fantastic. He's an ambassador for Transcend Recovery Community. He's a radio host. He's called games for ESPN. And you could just see, and Matt, I think you would agree with me, we could see in the Zoom, this guy is where he needs to be at this point in his life. And more importantly, he understands that his story is a weapon. And he wants to use his platform to be able to inspire others, both on and off the field, to help them with a lot of the demons that he went through. I thought it was fucking awesome. Uh, Well said, Arthur. And I'm going to allow me to step on my soapbox a little bit because in my travels, I found that the realest people are the ones that have been through the most. The ones pontificating on social media with their piousness and blue check marks, they're often just signaling and have no experience to back it up. You know, I get it. Everybody wants to present, you know, their best self in life, but everyone's social media is the best and it's unrealistic. And I feel that has moved us away from the reality that people are flawed. So when someone makes a mistake is brought up in this idyllic world of social media, it gets scrutinized beyond belief. The mob comes out with their pitchforks. And at the end of the day, there's no one ringing the bell to say, hey, maybe this person has had enough. And I feel like sports journalists, me included sometimes, have treated Ryan Leaf as this symbol of failure instead of a human being who is vulnerable to be affected by it all. But in going through that and making mistake after mistake, he's risen from the ashes and, in my opinion, seems equal or more enlightened than anyone we've spoken to. And I feel like everybody listening will agree. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I loved was, in addition to just talking about his story, we also got into a lot of topical stuff with him, talking about the UNLV quarterback controversy for Max Gilliam eating sushi off off of a nude model on Bravo's Below Deck. I thought that was amazing. He talked about his relationship with Jerry Jones, who has his own unique style of infamy. And just to give us insight into Jerry and how Jerry treats his former players was fascinating. I don't want to give away too much, but I feel like we covered a tremendous amount of topic matter that you probably haven't heard from Ryan before. And I think it's going to paint him in a very 
inspiring and authentic light where you're going to walk away as the listener thinking, man, not only do I feel for what this guy went through, despite it being of his own doing, I really like him and I get what he's trying to do now. And I thought that was just, I, I love that. So, all right, guys, here is our chat with former NFL quarterback, Ryan Leaf. All right, we are thrilled to have on the Endless Hustle today, Heisman finalist and former NFL quarterback and a guy who knows what it takes to bounce back, Mr. Ryan Leaf. Ryan, thanks for making the time, man. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no worries. First off, where does this podcast find you? Are you at home in Montana or? No, I'm at home at home in uh, California in Beverly Hills, actually. We're shut down at the time. Our, our governor and our, and our mayor has has put our our city under lockdown so not much has changed for me since last march i pretty much do the same thing you know i'm a i'm a preschool teacher now for a three-year-old is about the the change and everything but i get out and play golf i get out and hike when i can but you know it's mainly shelter in place and just do what you can last i saw you lived in montana in beverly hills that must be a slightly different lifestyle i mean obviously the pandemic is well i i didn't if I if I could have lived somewhere else, I would have. I was in prison in Montana, so yeah, that's where I was living. Um, <laughs> Guess uh, so as soon as as soon as the opportunity presented itself to to leave that state and and the prison cell that I was in, California was definitely the next stop. I needed to get to a place where I could play golf 365 days a year, uh, and that 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 was an important important variable for me. Ryan, I was just complimenting you and saying you look fucking great. You actually look like almost like what you look like in college. It's mind blowing. Talk to me about this physical transformation you've gone through recently. And more importantly, how you've been able to really use your platform to help other people with the journey you've been through. Well, I mean, I think everybody's going through uh, such a difficult time right now. Like I was pulled off the road by ESPN uh, March 11th. I was covering Jalen Hurts and the Oklahoma Sooners in their pro day. And uh, sure enough, that night, as I was flying out of Oklahoma City to go back to Los Angeles, the NBA shut down. Utah Jazz members were, were found to have the virus and they shut the NBA down. So everything stopped then. I got home and it was all about then kind of, you know, comforting yourself, being with family. And I really didn't look into what I was putting in my body, how I was exercising, any of that stuff. And in about a few months later, you know, beginning of July, I, you know, I saw a photo of myself and I just kind of looked angry and bloated and, and food for me is a, is a huge part of my mental health. And, and it, I think it's a huge part of a lot of people's mental health and how they, how they feel. And, and so I changed, I talked to a friend of mine who was a nutritionist and we started putting together a, a diet around blood tests I took to stop inflammation and, and just kind of to get healthy again. I, I felt like when's the last time I've been home every single day for an extended period of time where I wasn't going anywhere. So I could eat well every single day. And that's what I started. I started that July 3rd and uh, we're sitting here about five months later and uh, I'm, I'm 223 pounds. I started at two, 298 it's been a transformation, not only for, for me, but uh, how, I, how I feel each and every day. The amount of energy I have, I think, is huge. And it just reinforced for me where my foundation is in recovery, is that you have a choice to deal with any situation in the, in the most positive or healthy way you can. It's, it's on you. You can do that. And I just, I wasn't doing that. I was, you know, you, you start taking things for granted. And, and uh, you know, I enjoyed doing my work and traveling a lot. But 
you know, you know, there are more important things. I want to be around till I'm a hundred. Now that I have this, this young boy uh, to be in my life, I want to watch him grow up. I don't want to exit this life prematurely and not be able to see him grow up to be the man uh, that I'm raising him to be. So about eight months ago, you had posted that, that photo with him on the, uh, you posted it on Twitter. It was like your eight years sober or something. And I remember writing about it on Bro Bible. It was an editorial. It was such an inspiring, you know, story, but a big part of this podcast is kind of talking to former athletes about how they reinvent themselves after their playing days. Because if you're lucky, as you know, if you're still playing on your 30th birthday, you're in the minority. And what we yeah. found is that some of these guys struggle to find fulfillment outside of the game. I think you're a little different from what I understand. And that even when you were in the league and making millions, your identity was wrapped up in football, but it was making you miserable. Was there a line of demarcation for you where football stopped being uh, fun and fulfilling? Yeah, I mean, it did during, during my time in the NFL. I mean, it was, I was fighting my teammates. I was fighting the media. You know, I wasn't enjoying myself. And it was all because of me. I wasn't willing to like accept help and understand that I was the problem. And, um, you know, I made everything uh, a problem. And, and that's when it began. And so when I left the game, when I chose to quit rather than, you know, to ask for help, you know, let people know that I was incredibly depressed, uh, that I was having trouble getting out of bed, that I was sad all the time. Instead of like going and telling somebody that, I just quit something I'd wanted to do since I was like four years old. You know, since I had all this innocence around it and I thought I was making the right choice, but that void was just too enormous to fill. And I, and I filled it with my drug of choice, which was Vicodin, it, just to numb it. I didn't really enjoy football again for a long, long time. And it, it, it's kind of come full circle and it's, it gave me everything, right? Even though there's a lot of toxicity around it, it still gave me every dream I ever wanted. And it gave me every opportunity I ever wanted. And it's given me every opportunity I want now in the field of, of being an analyst on radio and TV. And, and I, and I love interacting with the young players and, and getting to travel around the country and speak to these college football teams because of the likes of Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney, these coaches who have invited me in to, to speak to their team because of my story and because of where our values match up and how we go about our day-to-day -day life now. So it's important to remember that it was an important part of my life and it continues to be a part of, important part of my life. It's the way I viewed it that made it ugly in any way, shape, or form. Ryan, few athletes can really encounter the level of pressure that you had to deal with. You're the standout at Washington State. You're in the Heisman conversation. You're being talked about for the number one pick. Matt and I will never understand what it's like when probably everybody on the planet is coming from at you from every direction. What is it actually like when you're in that moment as a young kid and you have to deal with that? Well, we ask for it. So, I mean, we don't have to do, do what we're doing, right? We don't have to go get paid millions of dollars to play a, a child's sport if we don't want the pressure. And sometimes we get lost in that and, and forget that. Now, when I'm in it and things are going well, I'm like, yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to, I'm a narcissist, so it's supposed to be all about me. But then when things get bad, a narcissist still believes that like, okay, this is okay. It's, it's, you know, you're talking about me. I don't care if you like me or not, you're still talking about me. And I think that's what made me successful, but there's a fine line between asshole and elite athlete, you know, and I just bounce back and forth between the two until I firmly landed on asshole for a long time. And, and, and so I don't ever really want to hear a young man in a situation where the starting, they're the starting quarterback for an NFL team or a big time college program complain about the pressure 
and uh, the scrutiny and the criticism because we don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You just, you have to do it the right way. And unfortunately, there are very few of us can, that can do it the right way. And I wasn't one of them. Do you ever feel like you're kind of a victim of your own success? Because if you hadn't been so dominant early on, expectations to succeed at a high level right away wouldn't have been so suffocating. I mean, a guy like, and this is my guy, Brian Hoyer has been in the league a decade because Brian Hoyer never had to live up to Ryan Leaf's expectations. Hey, I mean, there's, there's something to that. That's the business of football, right? We hear about that all the time. You're able to stick around and, you know, whose, whose career is more successful, Brian Hoyer's or mine? You know, everybody would jump immediately and say Brian Hoyer's. But I mean, when it's all said and done, I may have had more starts and more yards and all these things that, that exist. It's, it's weird how people compare. Expectations exist for a reason because you were pretty darn good. And if you don't live up to them, you're going to be a bust. It just, it's just how it's going to be. And for the longest time, I just I bought into what, what people were saying about that. Like, that's the end all be all to all of this. And it, 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 it tore me to shreds. I mean, I went to the very bottom because I cared so much about what other people thought when it came to that. You know, there's one, uh, there's 32 of us that, that play quarterback in the NFL every year. How could I ever in my wildest dreams see myself as a bust? And I did. And that's because of expectation and other people's ideas of, of what you were supposed to be. And I needed to look back at all the positives and the things that I did accomplish and, and all of those things. And it's hard to do when you start to believe everything that everybody says in the negative, in the negative format. Can you spot it? In a young quarterback, so for instance, Max Gilliam, who's a starting quarterback for UNLV, he just had a story that went viral about eating sushi off a nude model on the Bravo show Below Deck, and he got total shit for it, of course. He just came out and apologized. But do you look at a young kid like that, and are you like, oh, my God, this kid's already on the wrong track, and he's just going to fuck up? No, no. I'm sure I ate sushi off a a nude model when I was in college, too. It's just no one ever – no one ever documented it, right? Because there was no cell phones. There was no reality shows. There was no TV. Hey, I'd done some stupid shit in my life, and it continued throughout. I think what would raise a really good flag for me is the fact that, he's, that he actually went out and did something he probably didn't need to do, and that's apologize and be accountable, you know? That's what being a, a true leader and a quarterback is, is about being accountable when it isn't necessarily your fault, but you're the leader of the team, and people are blaming you for things that maybe not – may not be in your control and you go out and do it. So that for me, for how he reacted and what he did in the moment here is uh, absolutely uh, a good sign for me that he's going to do the right thing and be a good leader and everything like that. Because guess what? I don't know any of us who were that age and had an opportunity to eat sushi off a, a nude model's body were, would, n- would not do it. That's what always made me wonder about what was the quarterback's name for Oklahoma Knight? Remember when Katy Perry went on national TV and had a, had a crush on him? And like his answer was, nah, I got a girlfriend, man. I'm right, so good. I'm just going to play. No, I'm like, I'm dropping her in that moment. And I'm, <laughs> I'm flying to Oxford, Mississippi. And, and me and Katie are going on a date that night after I just won a game. That's how that works in that moment, people, when you're that age. <laughs> I, I love your answer because – You know, everybody, especially today, you've got to be a brand, especially with social media, and you've got to be clean. You've got to be Zion Williamson, right? But the truth is, as a college kid, you're an absolute animal. When you're the star at a university that has 50,000 people, you're a god, you're Jesus Christ for all those people. Of course you're going to be a fuck up. It's like, I love the reality of what you're sharing, which is, 
these kids are fuck ups. They're going to be fuck ups. It's a question of can they handle it if they do fuck up. And we're flawed human beings, all of us. No one, no one is close to perfect, right? I fuck up all the time still. You know, I'm a new father to a three-year-old. You don't think I'm messing up all the damn time? It's, it's, it's who we are. And this world that we live in of social media and, and everything like that, the likes and what we see on Instagram, what people post is absolutely not what real life is like. People who actually post and talk about their struggles plus their triumphs, that's what real life is like. So, you know, I, I don't buy into that narrative. I want to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I know that you're real. And that's why I think when I travel around the country and I, and I tell my story and I talk to people, there's a relatability that happens because guess what? I'm about as closely relatable to Tom Brady in terms of like variables. We played in the Rose Bowl. We, we were starting quarterbacks in college. We were starting NFL quarterbacks. But I feel like nowhere near the perfection that Tom Brady is. And I think if him and I walked into a room and people were like, oh, it's Tom Brady, it's Ryan Leaf, people would gravitate to me because they're like, dude, that guy's like me. He fucks up all the time, but he's cool. And you just, you just have these expectations for the likes of, of people that, are, that sit on a pedestal that you're, you're never going to meet them. You're never, you're never going to if, if the true version of yourself exists. It just, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's amazing how nobody really addresses the failures, but it's a feeling that everybody knows and the effect it can have on your self-esteem and the crippling future decisions and risk-taking. Risk I know you've been open about failure like and how it's pushed you to the edge. How has your relationship with failure evolved since those days? And what is your advice for people living conservatively just to kind of avoid failure? Well, failure is simply the opportunity to do it better the next time. That's, that's what it was. And I didn't understand that. I saw failure and success as completely black and white, uh, black and white scenario. Either you were a success or you were a failure. And there's no way I could be a failure, I thought in my mind. Therefore, I got so defensive and overreacted when, I was, when, I, when people were hypercritical because I thought that meant I was weak, vulnerable, all of those things. And now I just, I, I, I truly believe that, that failure is just the opportunity to do it better the next time. It's just like you, you're writing a draft of something and you, you misspell something. You can crumple that paper up and throw it in the trash and do it again. In recovery, I found that it works the same when you are living a life of one day at a time. When I wake up, if my day doesn't start off great, by 10 a.m., I've gotten into it with some friends or family or had a bad interaction with people at work or something like that, it doesn't have to derail my day right? You can, you can start your day over in that moment. You can choose to be happy. It's about what you do with that when things go the wrong way or you fail at something. It's all about how you react to it because life isn't going to be fair. It just isn't. It's how you deal with it that matters. And that's been the biggest teaching point for me. And, and for me, I guess I just, I had to be humbled in a way where I ended up in a prison cell. I mean, I just wasn't learning right? I had plenty of opportunities to learn. I had plenty of mentors and people who cared about me and unconditionally loved me and wanted me to see, see me do well. But my, my, you know, boneheadedness had to be humbled in a way where I would, I would fully understand. And luckily for me, I can, I can share my story with other people. So they don't, they don't have to go down that road or they don't have to get to the bottom that I did because there are solutions that are available and there are ways to go about living life that, that can change all that. Even though it's not your sport, the NBA just announced that they are getting rid of testing for marijuana with players. 
What are your thoughts on that? Because obviously marijuana is such a crazy topic right now. And we all know that in the NBA, tons of players smoke. They even tell us on the podcast how much they smoke. What are your thoughts? It's a private company. Uh, it's a private, I don't, you know, I have no say or, or care really what they do. If they choose not to test for marijuana, great. You know, what surprises me a lot is that you have multi-million dollars uh, on the line and the joy and the dream of playing a, a game, but you're not willing to stop doing something that can jeopardize that. That's always been the question for me. Like, I don't care if, it, if it's not right that they test for marijuana because marijuana is such a innocuous drug to a lot of people. It just, it just dumbfounded me for so long that they continue to do it to jeopardize their career. But then I think about like, well, there was, there was nothing that would stop me from using because it, it, it altered my mood. And a lot of these guys aren't going to admit that to you, that the reason they do it is because it alters their mood because they, they have so much going on. Their brain's going like this. They're playing every other night. You know, they need an escape sometimes. And that's what it does for them. So I, I totally understand that. I work in the field of recovery. So I work with individuals who are addicted to marijuana and have become psychotic because of it. So I have a much differing view of what it, or what or how it can affect you. I'm an addict, right? Like I can't drink or use drugs because I'm allergic to it, essentially, right? You know, I, I break out in handcuffs. That's, that's my <laughs> affiliation with drugs and alcohol. There are others who can drink normally who can, and I don't, I don't fault them for it and, and look at them differently or judge them like, oh, you, what a bad person for doing that. I think it's absolutely uh, in anybody's interest to do what they feel like they, they can do. I just was always shocked by the fact that players that were making so much money and things like that at the NFL and NBA level that, they would continue to do something that was considered banned and it could cost them millions and millions and millions of dollars in their dream job. If the league feels like they're losing too much in the PR battle and time on the court because players are, are just not going to stop doing it. Hey, that's their prerogative. They're a private business. They can do what they want. I know over the years you've been in touch with the only guy picked before you in the 98 draft, Peyton Manning. From what I understand, he reached out to you during tough times. Can you describe your relationship with Peyton and what it is now and the kind of guy he is away from the spotlight? Well, we've known each other since we were 21 years old, really, you know, back before there were cell phones, our SIDs at Washington State and Tennessee, we had both asked if we could get in touch with one another, because I think we both knew we were going to be associated with each other, you know, for a, for a long period of time. And, you know, back in the day where you had to be in your house, uh, where a landline was to get a phone call. And so we had a time set up. And I remember the first time he called. And when you're from Montana and from the Northwest, you don't hear that Southern drawl very often. And I remember picking up the headset of the phone and hearing that voice for the first time and thinking, oh my God, it's Peyton Manning. Because I don't care where I, you know, how good I was or whatever, you're still, you're still starstruck by these, these guys. And I think it's a big part of why I maybe never was truly successful because I didn't think I probably could p compete with a lot of these guys because they were, you know, I'm the only Montanan that's ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. I mean, there's been nobody. There are more first round draft picks in the Manning family than the state of Montana ever. So, you know, it was weird, but we, I think we enjoyed, I, I did, you know, I can't speak for him. I enjoyed talking with him. I think we were going through similar things, you know, of course his stardom was much different than mine. His father was a NFL superstar. My my dad, you know, worked as an insurance agent and, and we grew up in Great Falls, Montana. So, but it was enjoyable to, to be able to relate to, with somebody. And then we went through the whole process, the draft process, 
I think I probably came to resent him a little bit just because people considered him the golden boy and me kind of the black hat. And I ran with that. I thought I could be like the Dennis Rodman part of it as long as I, you know, did what I'd always done and compete and win when I should have probably just told people, Hey, Peyton and I are a lot alike. You know, we're kind of both country boys that are getting to do what we love. And, you know, when you guys tell me I'm bad, it reminds me a lot of my youth and it makes me, you know, feel bad. And I just never, you know, you're just never vulnerable and transparent like that. But I think, Peyton always understood that. And sure enough, when things got really bad for me, you know, when a lot of people just walked away from me, you know, he never did. His family never did. Olivia and Archie, they, they reached out to my family. And so nowadays it's texts, you know, from time to time. I saw him when I called the Tennessee Georgia state game a year ago, he, he cracked a joke with me when he texted me after the game and said, I cannot come back to Knoxville and call games because they got upset by Georgia state. Uh, that day I checked in with him the other day when they, when they lost to, Phil and Charles in, uh, in the uh, match play. I think I said that, Hey, you know, you guys are, you guys have a blast out there. You and I have to play. I think you and I would be a good match. I think is what I, what I texted him. So I know he's a member at Augusta. So maybe that, maybe that plays into it a little bit. Who knows? What was your rock bottom, Ryan? When did you realize this is it? It can't go any lower. You think it would be attempting to take your own life. Um, you'd think it would be waking up on a jail cell floor with a suicide schmock on because you were yelling crazy things to the officers when you were being arrested. You would think it would be going to a, a real prison. I don't know if any of that was. You know, I think the ultimate rock bottom is if you're no longer here, if you, if you quit. If you quit, I think that would be the, the bottom. And luckily for me, I didn't find that. You know, I'm so grateful that uh, all my attempts to to not be here or be part of society or my community or my family uh, worked because uh, it would have been the most selfish act. Uh, it would have been, uh, that would have been the bottom. So I don't, I don't necessarily know if I actually did. It, it, there were bad times, but I'm also in a place where like, I can stand in front of a room full of people and tell them I was grateful for having spent 32 months in prison. Now I don't recommend it, but I'm, I was, I can say that I'm, I'm grateful for that, which is a, a complete 180. We just had Ike Taylor on the pod from the Steelers. And he told us one of his greatest regrets, he called Troy Palomalu when Antonio Brown was going through all his shit with the Raiders. And they talked about how one of their greatest regrets was not pulling him aside as a younger player and just getting him in order. And because of his talent, and the offense and defense not really communicating openly. They let him become A.B., and his feedback was Antonio Brown needs to kill A.B. and kill the persona. Was there a, a player when you were going through all this shit that tried to put his arm around you and kind of clean you up and get you right? Yeah, Rodney Harrison. Uh, Rodney really tried. You know, I, I, did, I didn't listen. You know, I just – I didn't. I was – I got paid more. I was the star. Junior Seau tried as well. Both those guys, I think, really tried to take me under their wing, and I didn't do it. That's my fault, uh, for sure, because they were the they were the epitome of of what a pro player should be and how to go about their business. And and I really think if I would have just surrendered and accepted their help uh, on on how to be a professional, things would have would have been different because um, they they tried, they really did, and that's why I think it would hurt so much when I failed. Uh, so so poorly and left and some of the things they said when I left because 
they wanted me to succeed. Of course they did. And I just, I chose not to, or I chose not to at least listen about how to go about things. So uh, unfortunately, Junior isn't here with us anymore for me to apologize for that and make amends. But Rodney is, and he, uh, him and I have really reconnected and it's pushed our relationship to a different place as adults, as, as guys who no longer have football to play anymore and be successful at. So um, there's always time for that. And if I'm Ike and if I'm Troy, that there's still going to be time for that for them. And they, they, they can't look at that as, as something in the past, but something that they can help resolve in the future. Now, I was the individual at the time that wasn't open to hearing it, right? AB, and I've reached out to AB when all this went down too. You know, he, he just, he wasn't hearing it. Luckily, he needed somebody on his level or at least who he thought was on his level. And that may be Tom Brady. And he seems to have listened to Tom Brady and that that's meaningful. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that in this process. But if he's looking for to people who are only at that elite level, it's a, it's a small, small number. You, you kind of have to come, come to the gutter from where you, where you come from and, uh, and, and take advice there too. And I want to talk a little bit about Baker Mayfield because last October Baker threw like a league high 11 interceptions, blamed a loss on the raft, yada, yada. At that time, you said his approach to the game mirrored yours being a borderline arrogant, angry individual. Fast forward today, Browns are nine and three. Baker's numbers are up from last year. What is the biggest shift you've seen in Baker's approach in your opinion from last year to this year? His beautiful wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's saying something, right? A grounding force. You know, I, I think he was humbled last year, right? I, I don't know if there has been a time in his, his career where, you know, people were looking at him going like, you're not the answer. Like he's, he's always overcome. And so the defensive nature of it was how he'd always reacted his whole life. Very similar to mine. Like when people criticized me growing up, I would just come back at them with fury and fight and I would win. And when he did that last year and then they lost and he performed poorly, that was unusual. And he didn't know how to quite how to deal with it in the right way. So you saw this off season. It was real low key. It was real quiet. It was just go about the work. Now he's had a lot of adversity thrown at him with the fact that the A plays for the Cleveland Browns, B that he's on his fourth head coach in three years and all the expectations that come with that of being the savior of a franchise that has been just in the dumps and winning cures all. And this year they've won and it hasn't necessarily been on his back. You know, it's been on a great running game. It's been on an approach offensive schematically by their new head coach, Devansky defensively. They're much improved. I think it's a team thing. And, as any quarterback knows, it's all about team. You as an individual cannot dictate wins and losses. There are very few that can. Aaron Rodgers may be one of them, right? You're not going to be that guy in Cleveland. It's going to be a team effort completely. You're going to have to be a guy that doesn't make a lot of mistakes, and you're going to get all the credit when you win and all the, all the blame when you lose. But if you continue to win and put yourself in a positive position, people are always going to be grateful for you rather than pointing out all the blemishes that, that come along the way. One of my favorite people on the planet, Ryan, is Jerry Jones. You got the opportunity to play for him. Give me some great Jerry Jones stories. What's it like when that guy's signing your checks? I grew up a Steelers fan, right? So the Cowboys were at the very the bottom. And I remember when I got picked up by the Cowboys and, and I walked in and, and met Mr. Jones for the first time. There's something to be said about being a member of the Dallas Cowboys. And there's a loyalty that exists. It's pretty special. 
I think one of the first nights he invited me over to his house when I first signed and it was beautiful home in Turtle Creek at the time. And they had this unbelievable, like it was Ron Burgundy, like, right. He had this, this, this library that was made of only rich mahogany, you know, and, uh, and, and all of that. I mean, he, he loves what he does. He is a country Southern oil man who made it big and now gets to do the coolest thing in the world. And that's own the Dallas Cowboys and build and build and build. So pretty cool to trot out there with the star on your helmet. And, and till this day, the fact that I played for the Cowboys uh, endears me to Mr. Jones. And, and if I called him up and, and asked for something or, or anything, he wouldn't hesitate because if you, if you're a Dallas Cowboy, you're a Dallas Cowboy for life. Does he know how much of a character he is? Like, does he embrace it behind the scenes? And he's like, I'm fucking Jerry Jones. You have to, right? I just re, you know, I've become pretty close with Kevin Connolly, who played E on the on the TV show mm-hmm. Entourage. And I, during the quarantine and everything, I've just been been watching shows again. And I, I rewatched Entourage, and I remember talking to to Kevin about. It. I'm like, Jerry Jones comes on this this this. Sh-. He's just he is. He's a character, and he understands how to sell and how to market. And so, of course, he knows who he is. He has to understand. He just doesn't really care what anybody else thinks. He just knows what, what it takes to sell and make his, his organization a multi-billion dollar industry. Robert Griffin III's wife just posted something about RG3's phone no longer ringing when he was demoted to backup. During those struggles, did you find that teammates and people who are clinging on to you for money or clout or whatnot start to back away a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's just how it goes. You find out who your friends are when things get bad, and I certainly did. Not only when I was playing, but when things got so bad that I was going to prison, right? There are certain individuals that, that hang on to you when you have all the money and the fame. And even though things are going bad, they're not going to be critical of you because you're their golden goose. And those that will be critical of you are actually the ones that will save your life. And those are your true friends, the people that will actually show you the mirror. You find out a lot about people especially ones that say they got your back when things are tough that don't. And that's okay. You know, I can count my true friends on one hand, to be honest with you. And I wouldn't want it any other way because I'm able to reciprocate that. And that's special to me. I'm old enough because I'm 42, Ryan, to remember you playing in college and how much of a beast you were. You had a howitzer for an arm. You probably still do. What's one throw you made in your career that no other person on the planet could make? Well, I don't know about on the planet because um, there are some very capable quarterbacks out there. But there was a game against Arizona. And my, I think it was my junior year, my sophomore year. And it was a naked boot from the middle of the field to the right hash. And my wide receiver was running a, a big, deep post corner and so I was completely on one sideline he was going to be completely on the other sideline about I don't know 50 yards down the field but you count the width probably ended up being about a 65 to 75 yard pass and it looked like I just flicked it and it just went and kept going and kept going and kept going and that DB who was chasing after my wide receiver was thinking how the hell where do I how do I keep running here this ball is never and, and my wideout caught it, got pulled down, you know, going out of bounds. And I remember running to the, the next play, the huddle, looking over at the sideline. And, and Coach Bryce needed to call the next play. But I think he was so in awe of what just happened, 
we ended up having to call a timeout because he, he didn't call he, he didn't call the next play. We didn't have the next play in play because he, he sat there and admired what I had just done. And uh, uh, that was pretty cool. That's probably the coolest throw I've ever had in my life. Going to find that on YouTube after this. Ryan, you've been an absolute joy, man. Thank you so much for an awesome interview. And we're so happy we could have you on the show. And the work you're doing right now, just fabulous. And just keep helping people, man. Awesome journey, awesome story. And just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, great to hear your perspective. Well, you bet, guys. Thanks for the opportunity, giving me the, the chance, because uh, it's the only reason I do this, right? It's not, it's not the greatest feeling in the world to be emotionally drained after something, because you talk about you know, some of the hardships you had. But I know there's somebody out there that's going to listen to your podcast that's either in the same place I was, you know, nine years ago or are going through it uh, or, or have gone through it recently or know somebody that, that it can change because every life is pre- precious and, and, and we got to make sure that when this pandemic's over that we, we close ranks and, and we get in this together in terms of the mental health and safety of every, every human being on our planet. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're welcome back anytime, man. You bet, guys. Have a great day. Well, all I can say is, Matt, I think you would agree. Wow. That was unbelievable. We didn't know what to expect when Ryan was coming on the show. Anytime someone has the controversial history that someone like him does, you really don't know if they're going to be willing to open up. And Matt, I think we would both agree that Ryan was willing to go there, but more importantly, he wanted us to go there because he wanted people to hear the, the, the travails that he's gone through so that it can help them. I also think it's hilarious when he told us who wouldn't eat sushi off a nude model in college. He sure did. Probably ate him off a ton of sorority girls. I would have loved to have gone with, to college with, with Ryan Leaf. But one of the things that I really loved was when he was talking about Max Gilliam and the perspective that he gave around, hey, this kid fucked up, right? We know that. But the fact that he was willing to own up to it and apologize gives you a perspective into character of what this kid is as a leader. And I thought that was really great to hear because my initial impression was, oh boy, here's the next Ryan Leaf. But he really dispelled that and he changed my mind. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's been reported that he spent 32 months in prison in Montana and he went outside twice in that time. He said that because he didn't feel like he deserved to go outside then. And now to see him now when he's talking about how good he's feeling, how he's treating his body, how he's treating his mind. And, you know, you can't type his name into Google without seeing draft bust as a precursor. So, I mean, what that does to someone's, you know, psychology and to be able to bounce back from that takes a lot of integrity. And I think that really shown through in the, in the interview. Super exciting. Ryan was awesome. And I think we could also agree, Matt, our guest on Thursday absolutely blew the door off. Uh, mind-blowing stuff from Fox NFL inside story breaker, Mr. Jay Glazer. That's who we have on Thursday, guys. Jay, how do I say this? Jay was the equivalent of sitting at a bar with the coolest, toughest dude you know who's lived one of the coolest lives you can imagine, and the dude sharing stories that you wish you could be a fly on the wall on. And I think, Matt, he enjoyed talking to us so much because we weren't just talking football. We really were letting this guy tell his unique story and the journey he's been on. 
And what was originally supposed to be a 30-minute interview on the high side, we were given 20 to 30 minutes, became almost an hour. And I think we could have kept going, but we just felt bad for Jay. Probably had to, he, he had to run his companies. Jay was awesome, guys. I can't wait for you guys to hear this on Thursday. A hundred percent. And, you know, you guys got to follow us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear how the show can improve. You can follow us on Twitter at Endless Double underscore Hustle. And you can follow us at on Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. You can find my personal account on Twitter and on Instagram at Mr. Cohan. Cohan spelled K-E-O-H-A-N. I am at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. Follow all of us. Make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast because we're doing a kick-ass job. And we'll see you on Thursday with Fox NFL analyst, Jay Glazer. Peace.